This episode is sponsored by Enriched Superfoods. Enriched is my go-to store for the most powerful, most pure superfoods on the plain et. They've got all the good stuff from maca to matcha, from shilajit to powdered greens. But you know what I love the most? I love the mushrooms. Now I know what most of you are thinking, get on with the show, right? But I know what else you're thinking. You're thinking, how can I get better at strangling people? Us jiu-jitsu guys, we're all the same. We want to be better, we want to be badder. Well, being better requires two things, learning more stuff and being able to execute more stuff. And Enriched has got you covered with what I'm calling the White Basement Jiu-Jitsu Super Stack. First is Lion's Mane Mushroom to supercharge memory, focus and clarity and even better, give a neurotrophic boost literally helping you grow new jiu-jitsu brain cells. Now, a jiu-jitsu super brain is all well and good, but if you can't execute on the mat, then it don't mean jack. That's why the second half of the super stack is the legendary Cordyceps CS4 mushroom extract, scientifically proven to offer heroic levels of stamina and energy, as well as improved lung function, actually helping you breathe better while you stop other people from breathing at all. Go to enriched.co, that's E-N-R-I-C-H-D.co, and use the promo code WHITEBASEMENTPOD for a 10% discount across the whole site. Want to get more taps in more rounds and more respect from more people? Then get super stacked. Go to enriched.co and use the promo code WHITEBASEMENTPOD. Knowledge is a powerful thing. Okay, and having no knowledge of something is always going to be worse than having some knowledge. So you've got to understand, if I tried to equate this maybe poorly in jiu-jitsu terms, right? In jiu-jitsu, we have definite positions of advantage. The two most best positions of advantage would be the mount, right? And the back mount. The mount because they can't submit you from underneath, but you can punch them, elbow them, knee them, armbar them, and choke them if you had a gi or no gi. You know what I mean? Back mount, the same thing applies, right? You can choke them, armbar them. You can even hit them from behind, but the person, all they can really do is to get out unless you're a muppet and then you cross your ankles in, their, in between their legs, Right? So the starting point is you are in a position of disadvantage if you are caught in those positions. So what does that mean? Does that mean you should just give up and say, no, that's it, I'm not doing it? No. So like now if I bring that, if I equate that with a knife now, the moment you enter a knife confrontation, you are in a position of disadvantage straight away because... Even if they're not an expert, they have a sometimes longer than long, sharp object which can kill you. But if you have some knowledge, that increases your chances of survival, which is what we are talking about, survival. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the White Basement Podcast. Don't forget to follow us at White Basement Pod on Instagram. We drop a new episode every Tuesday. 
Today I am joined by Malandro, David Anuma. He's a lifelong student of the martial arts and a high-level practitioner of multiple styles. David is a qualified instructor in Wing Chun, also in integrated arts under Terry Barnett, in Jeet Kune Do and Silat under Dan Inosanto and Bob Breen, in submission wrestling under Eric Paulson, and of course in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu under Ricardo Vieira and Romero Cavalcanti. He's the founder of Combined Fighting Systems, which he runs out of his London gym, North 12 Martial Arts Academy. Professor David Anuma, welcome to the podcast. Hey, good to see you. Nice to uh, be on your podcast with you this morning. Um, so I've, I wrote some questions, mm. and the first one I, I want to ask you is, uh, tell me about your nickname. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a funny one. So the nickname was actually given to me by uh, you know, Professor Ricardo Vieira, who um, is one of the co-founders of the Checkmat team. At the time, uh, I think I was given that nickname in 2006, so at the time it was given to me, um, I, I don't speak any Portuguese really now, but I sp spoke even less then. And I asked him what he meant. And he said, it's because I was a, a good all-rounder, apparently, right, in my jiu-jitsu, I was a good all-rounder. Um, I just took it at face value. And it wasn't until years later I looked up Melandro on you know the internet. And I was like... Really, a Melandro is like, can be many things. A Melandro can be a bit of a scoundrel. I think the best way to describe a Melandro, from what I read, is a bit of an Arthur Daly. If you're old enough, you'll know who Arthur Daly is. And Arthur Daly wasn't a bad guy, but he always kind of managed to survive wheeling and dealing. He always kind of came out on top. So I think it was a compliment. Um, but it's my nickname and it's kind of stuck with me. And so, so, so there you are. But Melandro is not a bad guy, but... He finds a way to to come out at the other end. Yeah, because I I, I, um, I I saw that it's it, it can mean clever, but sneakily, yeah. kind of. Yeah, would you would you say that 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 represents your your style, or do you think that's not doing you justice? I I don't know. Everything you have to be a little bit sneaky, um, generally anyway. But sneaky can be seen as a as a bad thing. Right, but but you have to be a bit sneaky. Any time that you use your mind to achieve something, and then you're preempting what other people do, you have to be a little bit sneaky. That's that's what you're doing. But obviously, you can be sneaky. You, the same way you can use your mind in a positive way, you can use it in a negative way. So you can be sneaky in a negative way if you choose to be. Um, but obviously, I mean, if you take jujitsu for example, right? You're rolling with somebody. You're both trying to trick each other into making mistakes and taking advantage of those mistakes. So you're being sneaky all the time, right? You, you, you don't want to telegraph exactly what you're doing, otherwise they'll counter it before it even happens. So there is a lot of sneakiness, if you want to call it, in jiu-jitsu, and that doesn't make it bad, right? Absolutely, yeah. So, so maybe can you, can you talk a little bit about your um, training history with some legitimate legends in the world of martial arts eric paulson dan Inosanto, bob breen maybe there's other people as well that you you, you want to mention but i mean it's kind of like one degree of separation from bruce lee who who really is the 
the, the kind of spiritual father of martial arts in the West, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I got into martial arts because of Bruce Lee, you know, back in the day. Obviously, Bruce Lee passed 72, if I'm correct, should be. And, but his legacy was very strong and still lives on, right? Um, and then, of course, you had all the late-night kung fu movies and that kind of stuff, which was, which was great. Um, but in terms of, you know, I, I'm, pretty, I'm really fortunate, to be honest, because I've almost never had a bad martial arts instructor. Almost. Um, I have had a couple, uh, and because there's no need, I wouldn't make any reference to them in this podcast. But, you know, on the whole, all my, t all my teachers have been genuinely been world class. Um, so I've been spoiled, you know, from, from that aspect, right? Um, and, you know, look, I, I, I feel that I'm genuinely um, a student of the martial arts who never stopped. Right, so I have many qualifications, but they came as a result of not stopping training, as opposed to, you know, trying to get those qualifications. Um, so, you know, I, I studied Wing Chun for a, a long time, and um, I still use aspects of it in the sense that the theories and the concepts of, it, and and also the techniques, if if they're appropriate. Um, and if somebody wants to train privately with Wing Chun, I, I can I can do that. Kickboxing in its rawest form, as in punching and kicking, has always you know been there. Um, and um, I mean, my striking has changed over the years because uh, as I became uh, exposed to Bruce Lee's arts of you know Jeet Kune Do. Well, the Jeet Kune Do is really the name of his thinking, uh, whereas the style that he taught was Jun Fan Gong Fu, all right? So for some people, it's a little bit complex to understand, but the, the, the physical manifestation, the curriculum was Jun, Jun Fan Gong Fu. The concept, the umbrella was Jeet Kune Do. And so when he passed... Um, where he was at that stage in his development uh, was the curriculum they had at the time. But obviously, given his thinking, had he still been training, he would have developed and evolved into other things without any doubt. Um, and, you know, this is, this, is, this is not new. I mean, I think, you know, many people consider him one of the premier mixed martial artists, if you want to call it. If you look in... I think it was Game of Death. No, Enter the Dragon. Um, in one of the early scenes, he's there with, uh, I think it was Sammo Hung. I think Jackie Chan was in that movie. But anyway, he was one of the early scenes. He's there doing, you know, kind of like an MMA kind of fight with what they called the Bong Sao gloves. And what's he got? Punching, gripping, grappling, takedown armbars, right? And it's like, oh, where were they doing that before? And I'm sure somebody was doing something somewhere, of course. But I mean, on a public scale, that wasn't really seen, you know? And that way of thinking has influenced um, the world. But getting back to your, you know, your, your question, so um, in more, I say in more modern times, I was lucky and fortunate to be exposed to uh, Guru Bob Breen. Um, in 1996, I joined his academy. And um, 
if I'm honest, he he is was and is the major influence on my whole martial arts training, the whole thing. Because before I trained with him, I didn't know how to combine what I knew. They were all separate. There was years of Wing Chun, years of kickboxing. But they were separate to me. Didn't know how to blend them. I had done a little bit of weaponry in 1990 from an unlikely source because at that time, Sifu Nino Bernardo, who Wing Chun guys will know, was one of the leading exponents of Wing Chun in Europe. And he had actually become a student, an apprentice instructor of Guru Dan in the center. And he was teaching weaponry in England, in London, uh, for many years. And uh, my first exposure to the Filipino martial arts was in 1990 or thereabouts um, through him and through his student at the time, Michael Lewison. So we were training it. Um, later on, and I, I, I don't know the, the, the full history, but later on there came a point where I think um, Sifunino Bernardo uh, was given a choice or he came away from the Filipino martial arts. I think his teacher wanted him to concentrate on Wing Chun. I, I, this is what I believe the position to be. I don't know the exact facts. But he stopped practicing or teaching Filipino martial arts after a while. When that was, I don't know. Anyway, so it wasn't until 1996 when I... Um, I wrongly felt I knew enough about Wing Chun at the time. I thought I knew enough. I was completely wrong. Uh, and um, and uh, I thought I know enough about kickboxing and striking. I was completely wrong. And I wanted to learn something new. So I, I joined Guru Bhagavad's Academy only to learn the weaponry. That's why I joined there. And that's when I became introduced to, yes, the world of the Filipino martial arts, but also uh, Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do. But more importantly how to integrate things, because I'd never integrated things before. Um, so it was there that I met Guru Bob Reem, and also uh, Guru Terry Barnett, who was um, his most senior instructor, and was also one of the instructors at the academy. Um, and that opened up a whole new world. So, from being exposed to that, I then learnt about grappling, because Guru Bob was one of the first people to bring over high-level grapplers to the UK. He was. Um, and, um, you know, Machado's came and Eric Paulson later came with Guru Dan and Asanto. And, um, <clears throat> and there were others. Mark McFan, some people don't know, but it's from the JKD Carly background, but he was an excellent, excellent grappler. So um, the exposure came from that. It was like, oh, wow, there's, there's grappling. And so the, the idea was for me was, okay, not to become a grappler, it was just to learn what to do if I hit the floor, right? Even though it was never going to happen to me because my stand-up stuff was so good, I'd never hit the floor. Um, speaking about that for a second, it's funny. I ignorance is an amazing thing because some people never find out they're ignorant. And then if you're fortunate enough to find out you are ignorant, then you realize, oh my gosh, I really was so ignorant at this time. So... When I was in university, uh, studying law between 1986 and 1990, when I was there at my university, we had a guy called uh, Ray Sylvester. 
Ray Sylvester was a uh, very big um, guy who actually was from High Wycombe Judo Club. So he was a very high-level judo guy. And he was there around the same time as me. And we kind of hooked up and we talked about martial arts. We didn't actually train together, but we kind of hooked up a little bit. And I remember thinking, trying to convince him to learn Wing Chun. Uh, you, you need it because we're never going to hit the floor, blah, 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 all this guy. It was only years later that I discovered that if he'd have grabbed hold of me, I mean, you know, honestly, I would have been flying through the air like a plane and just destroyed because the irony is Wing Chun is a close-range style. So I would have got close to try to hit him and then I would have been grabbed and thrown through the air and landed on the floor and destroyed. But because the exchange didn't actually happen, I didn't, my education was put back a little bit. But it was quite sad too because I had the opportunity to train with a really high-level judoka at the time. And that was missed. So yeah, years later I discovered, oh my gosh, I was really lucky I didn't get destroyed, but it would be nice to know something then, right? Um... So, uh, and then the rest just followed. I, you know, started, started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know, and just carried on, never stopped. Um, and uh, due to my training with Guru Bob and, and learning from him, uh, I was put on to, allowed to join Guru Dan in the Santos instructor program. So I was used to travel to America to train with him on his instructor camps and catch him in Europe when he used to come. doesn't really come much to Europe anymore. Um, and then became qualified under him in also Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do, Filipino martial arts, and Silat, his system of Silat, which is called Mafilindo. And Mafilindo is based on the Maris from Malaysia, the Phil is from the Filipino, and the Indo is from Indonesia. So it's a combined system that he had created with, along with four or five other masters. And then he was left with the system himself, which he passes on. Um, so those are, you know, the main styles. I mean, Sensei Eric Paulson, who is a genius of an individual, um, I was fortunate enough to join his instructor program back somewhere in 98, 99, um, did coach level one, coach level two, coach level three, whatever it was. And then I think it was, it's on my certificate on the wall, I think in 2005, maybe, I became um, a representative instructor. Um, now now I'm not in the sense that, um, you know, when you continue to represent someone, you're on their program, you pay your dues, you know what I mean? You follow that program. So I haven't done that for ages. I got to that level, so... I have that level of teaching skill um, in theory, um, but I'm not like on his current list of instructors and haven't been for some while. So, But um, again, another fantastic learning experience training with somebody like him who is so diverse. And, um, and even now I, I watch a lot of his stuff and he puts information out. And just the other day I was watching something on his Instagram page and then you've got him teaching some wrestling, you've got him teaching some, you know, shoot, take down some of his MMA stuff. And then he was doing some knife defense the other day. And then he was doing some stick training. Because he's trained in all that. Do you know what I mean? He, he understands it, you know. 
Um, he knows how to swing a stick. He knows how to use a knife. You know, and he knows how to integrate it all. You know, and that's that's the beauty of it. He's, he's far, far, far from a one-trick pony. Even though he's, you know, more known for his, you know, MMA submission grappling kind of kind of stuff. So it's people like that when you see them, um, and you learn from them. You you know, if you're smart, you 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 can be guided by that. Well, so a, a little a little bit of a. a diversion of a question what what is your thoughts on knife defense do you think it's even realistic but listen but what i will say is this knowledge is a powerful thing okay and having no knowledge of something is always going to be worse than having some knowledge so you got to understand, um, if I tried, if I tried to equate this maybe poorly in jiu-jitsu terms, right? In jiu-jitsu, we have definite positions of advantage. The two most best positions of advantage would be the mount, right? And the back mount. The mount because they can't submit you from underneath, but you can punch them, elbow them, knee them, armbar them, and choke them if you had a gi, or no gi, you know what I mean. Back mount, the same thing applies, right? You can choke them, armbar them, you can even hit them from behind, but the person, all they can really do is to get out unless you're a muppet and then you cross your ankles in, their, in between their legs, right? So the starting point is you are in a dis position of disadvantage if you are caught in those positions. So what does that mean? Does that mean you should just give up and say, no, that's it, I'm not doing it? No. So like now if I bring that, the, if I equate that with a knife now, the moment you enter a knife confrontation, you are in a position of disadvantage straight away because... Even if they're not an expert, they have a sometimes longer than long, sharp object which can kill you. But if you have some knowledge, that increases your chances of survival, which is what we are talking about, survival. Especially empty hands against a blade, right? So that's kind of it in a nutshell, and if things went your way, you could possibly survive a knife attack without any harm, if things went your way, okay? Um, the other aspect, though, is it teaches you also how to use other things to potentially protect yourself against somebody who has a weapon, things that you wouldn't think of. Let's presume for a moment that you have an opportunity to see what's going on. As in, I'm not just standing there and someone stabs me in the neck from behind or in the kidney from behind. You're finished, right? If you had the chance to see someone coming towards you, the best thing always, if you can, is, is run. But people can't always run. Partly because of physicality and partly because who you might be leaving behind, right? You're there with your wife and your kids or somebody, whatever, or your friend. 
Okay, if they've pissed you off, you can leave them behind and run off, right? But you know what I mean? You may not be able to, to run. Your first instinct should be to get something bigger than what they've got. So you might be in, in a restaurant and you grab the chair and you put it between you. And, you know what I mean? Uh, I was going to say grab the waitress, but I'm just kidding, right? But you grab the chair, you pick up something that will give you maybe a length advantage over those. You might even need to pull your shoe off quickly and hold it in front of you because then that's something you can use that can maybe help to strike the hand that's got the blade. Is there still danger? Of course there is. But you're, you're increasing your odds of survival with knowledge, if that makes sense, and knowledge that is part of you, right? So um, there is a place for everything. Let me just kind of give you another example about uh, context. So in the armed forces, which I do not claim to be an expert on, but in the armed forces, many of them will carry a larger weapon, AK-47 or whatever, so like some kind of rifle. There'll be an intermediate weapon, which will be some form of pistol. But they will also have a blade, a knife of some form. Common sense will tell you they're not going to run after the guy down the road and throw the knife. They're going to shoot you at the longer range. But in the closer range, depending on the situation, they're going to need to use the knife. They may also need to defend against a knife attack, even though the other person may be armed, because maybe the other person doesn't want to shoot because they want to keep it quiet at that time. Um, also, there's terrain. And when I say terrain, um, as Guru Dan used to tell us, in the Philippines, there were some areas of terrain where the foliage, the bushes, was so thick, you couldn't shoot because you'd kill your mate. You couldn't see to shoot. So therefore, they had uh, crease or, you know, long blades to, first of all, which they would use to clear the foliage in front of them. But also, when somebody rushed out the bushes, you still couldn't shoot, and you'd have to stab. So you, you have to look in terms of context, and so on and so forth. So all I'm trying to say is there is a lot to it. Context is everything. And knowledge is power. Um, so if you don't have any knowledge, your chances of survival drastically increase. reduce. Yeah. If you have some knowledge, your chances of survival increase by whatever percentage to whatever percentage. But there is some there is a yeah, better chance. Yeah, it makes makes sense. So um, yeah, maybe maybe going back on to the the kind of uh, the the questions that I had, um, I wrote on here. Uh, you're a Libra. <laughs> Libra's sign is the scales of justice, which is appropriate as you were, are still were a solicitor. Um, however, I wonder if you feel that the scales which denote balance have informed or guided your journey to become a balanced and complete martial artist because you seem very um, well-rounded. 
you know, especially with my limited experience of jiu-jitsu. I mean, I've been training regularly for about five, six years now. But most jiu-jitsu people are just jiu-jitsu people. They're just, you know, training jiu-jitsu. That, that's, that's their thing. Whereas your um, persona, um, your, your kind of the academy, it's, it's very much, as, as you say, uh, uh, combined fighting systems, right? It is not just the, the, the jiu-jitsu. It, so that kind of well-rounded and um, balanced approach to martial arts, is, is this kind of something that's always been a theme in your life or have you, did you just kind of develop this as you, as you went? Okay, that's a good question. So look, um, it's definitely something that has been developed and both influenced by the things that I've done in my life. Both. So, I think, first of all, the exposure to Guru Bob's Academy, that way of, that whole way of thinking, um, integrating Bruce Lee's approach, absorb what is, use, what is useful and reject what is useless. The idea of that only came after I joined Guru Bob's Academy. And I was already a qualified lawyer in 1993. That's when I qualified as a solicitor. Um, now, the thing is that I think the thing that... I was going to say, the thing that makes me different, although I was going to say there are many, there are many martial artists out there who are like me, in general, right? Although the percentage of those like me are still small to the general, right? So, for example, in, in the UK, you have uh, quite a few people who are qualified in jiu-jitsu and other stuff as well. One of the greatest exponents is uh, Rick Young. Do you know who Rick Young is? I know the name. Yeah, so Rick Young is you know, Professor Rick Young, Guru Rick Young. He is one of Guru Dan and the Santos' highest-ranked instructors in the Filipino martial arts Jiu Kundo and Kali, right? He's also a fourth-degree black belt in Jiu-Jitsu under Master Mauricio Gomez. Highly ranked under Eric Paulson and Shoot. Long-time judo black belt. And I'm going to say, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, very politely. And in the gi and no gi, he's been a master's world champion, gi and no gi. And he's a little bit older than me, right? So he's somebody that when I say I would aspire to, like I haven't achieved what he's achieved. And, but when I say, so he'd be like, I don't know, like the epitome of, uh, of what you're trying to do, all right? And there are others who are first generation, second generation students who have followed that path. Now there are quite a number of guys who are qualified in Jeet Kune Do Kali who are also Jiu-Jitsu black belts, quite a few. Uh, Peter Richardson in Aberdeen, he's a very good guy, very skilled. You know, known him for a long time, he's a Carlson 
Gracie, well, Castle Gracie Liners, hey Diego, was his instructor. He's another excellent guy. If you see him punching and kicking, amazing. You see him grappling, amazing. He's competed, you know, business guy, family guy. You know, they're, they're, what I'm saying is that there are quite a few of us like that around. But in comparison to the mainstream, there are not many of us. Okay. So what I think um, when I say sets me apart, what I think makes me different is um, I trained as a lawyer and I qualified as a criminal lawyer. Well, no, I qualified as a lawyer and I went into criminal law. Now, as a criminal lawyer, I learned, I saw a lot. You had to see both sides of the equation, the prosecution side and the defense side. You had to work out solutions and how to represent people. Um, but more importantly, and I'm going to talk about something, but more importantly, I was a court advocate. I went to court and I did trials. I conducted trials. I actually was the lawyer in the magistrate's court who was representing the client in a contested hearing. In order to do that, you have to know the prosecution case inside out as well as the defense case. So you have to preempt what questions they're going to ask your client. You have to work out how to beat the case, if you want to call it that, right? And then it's not just a theory. I'm now in court. I'm the one asking the witnesses questions. I'm the one cross-examining those witnesses, right? I have to work out the questions to ask them to try and give the answers that I want to see if you're telling the truth. That is, if I equate that to jiu-jitsu terms, that is a competitor. So, you can be a good criminal lawyer, know the law, understand the law, be able to advise the clients. So, let me explain the parallel if I'm make, not making it clear already. You have the GP who you see in the surgery and they tell you you got a bad back or bad foot or this or that, whatever, general GP, and, you know, respect to the ones that do it right because there's a lot that don't care. But, but when you need the operation, you go to the knee surgeon. That's the expert. He's the one who's done the operations. The GP is not going to be the one that's fully going to advise you or do it. It's just surgeon. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. When you go to see a criminal lawyer maybe, you can see the one in the office, but it's the one who's actually in court representing you, who's done it before with the experience. Right. Let's go to jiu-jitsu. You have the guy who's trained, you know, he knows jiu-jitsu, he's pretty good, but never competed. Doesn't mean he's no good, but he's never competed. He's the one that really knows, he's been in the thick of the wars, really knows exactly what to do. He has a better chance. Right? And then you've got the guy in the army, which doesn't really happen that much, but who, these are theory, combat, this, that, blah, blah, blah. But you want to talk to the guy who's done four tours in wherever, because he knows exactly the sound when the bullet whistles past his ear and why you keep your head down. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of digressed a little bit, but it's, I'm trying to say that for me... As a lawyer, 
not only did I have to learn both sides of the equation, prepare, be structured, be organized, I also did the hearings in court where your shortcomings come out if you're not prepared, right? So as a martial artist, I didn't compete in every single thing I did, partly because of age and partly because you can't compete in everything. I was working as a lawyer. But I did do some striking competitions when I was younger. I did do contested stick fighting and, um, and also... You know, I taught my students as well and had one of my students who unfortunately passed away many years ago who was a world stick fighting champion. And then, of course, in jiu-jitsu, which I got into in my later years, that was something I was able to go and compete in without having to worry too much about, you know, my head being smashed in and going to court tomorrow with a black eye because that's not what you want, right? Um, but so in as much as I was able to do these things, I tried to test out what I know. And that's so important because it does produce a different quality. So I'm not saying somebody who doesn't compete or doesn't go all that way is bad, but it's different. It's different and there's it no is. question about it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that for me, that's one of the things about jiu-jitsu that I enjoy the most mm. Even even outside of competing, I mean, I've I've done a few competitions, but even even outside of competing, just you know, live sparring in the gym, um, because I I did um, kung fu, Shaolin kung fu for I don't know maybe like seven eight years when I was younger. You know, it was at a reasonably good level. Stopped when I started working, was too tired, you know, whatever, and um, ended up. It's a long story, but en ended up. Um, doing doing jujitsu, but the the thing that I I like about jujitsu is that because of the the sparring and competition, it's very um, honest in terms of the feedback you get. Because the thing that I always felt with uh, my stand up stuff was because you 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 can't really fully be live with it, right? You can't have a full on fight with eye pokes and fish hooks. You just you never know really how it would work. So, so even the sparring, you know, we, we had body pads on and, you know, you couldn't punch to the face, you could kick to the head. There was, a, you know, all these various limitations. But I always felt with that, like, I don't know whether this works or not. If I would be in a confrontation, I would always have that feeling of like, like I don't know whether this is going to translate or not. Like you say, I, I had some knowledge, I've got some training, I'm fit, you know, etc. But you, you don't really know, you don't really get that, that the feedback Whereas with jujitsu, like I know kind of what, what my limitations are, where I'm comfortable, where I'm not comfortable, where if, if I get just beyond a certain point, this is bad. If I'm just here, this is still recoverable or whatever. And, and, and I, that's, that's one of the things I think that's most attractive about jujitsu is that it does give you constantly that feedback as to where you are really, as to, as to where you think you are. Yeah. I mean, look, the... The blessing and the curse of jiu-jitsu is that the way it's trained now and has always been, they're sparring. Right from the beginning, you know, more or less from the beginning, sometimes a bit too early. I've seen some, and there are still some instructors who, who believe that a beginner should spar on their first lesson or in their first week, first two weeks. Mm. 
I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if you have a beginner and you put them sparring in the first two weeks, I, I mean, I'm using two weeks as a generality, you're not doing anybody any favors or yourself. Because in order to spar, you need to have some knowledge of what you're doing first. Right? The risks of injury are high. That's the first thing. The second thing is, from a legal perspective, you try and explain to a court, you try and explain to an insurer when that student gets injured and they maybe sue you, how you, as a black belt, thought that somebody with no experience was ready to spar after two weeks. You cannot win. Yeah, I mean, this this was actually my, my initial... Uh jiu-jitsu experience um was in my first class i got stacked sort of over on my neck i couldn't train for 10 years that's madness right and people need to understand that that's not the right way yeah. oh yeah they did it to me it was great oh congratulations congratulations that's muppetry right <laughs> and anybody who runs an academy in this day and age and you let the students spar I mean, I'm talking about a newbie, no training, nothing, comes in and, you know, maybe once a week and you got them sparring like quick, you're really asking for a lot of trouble, yeah. really asking yeah. for a lot of trouble. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's just my opinion, but, uh, and, you know, people always feel to disagree, but that's also common sense. There's no rush to spar. There mm -hmm. is no rush, right? And it's not watering anything down. You're just building the time to get them to get to that stage so they know how their body moves, right? Yeah, it, it does tend to be, I think, um, in the, it's those early weeks and months when you're most likely to, to get a silly injury. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there is, no, there is no sense to that at all. No common sense, anyway, in my opinion. As to how long you leave them, it's a different story, but give it a little while, you know, let them, there's no rush, you know. Let them, you know, build it up and develop for safety. Um, so, are you are you now teaching more jujitsu than anything else, or do you, do you, are you still sort of actively doing all the other stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I still teach Filipino martial arts every week. I teach some striking every week and jujitsu every week. I tend to teach more jujitsu than than the others, and that's mainly because. Uh, that's what the business calls for. You know, jiu-jitsu is very popular. We have more people doing jiu-jitsu in our academy than, than not. Also, in our academy, we have a very substantial children's program, which we have, like, we have about 250 kids training in my academy, right? Four to six and seven to 13 years of age, plus teenagers, right? So they have a lot of classes. I supervise the program. I teach some. I have staff that help. So I'm in jiu-jitsu a lot. Uh, you know, because that's just how, you know, it is with the business, right? Um, and I'm not trying to be a jack of all trades. I enjoy what I do, but, you know, that's basically just kind of how it is. So, well, one of the one of the, the, the other questions that I had was um, whether you have a recommendation. So um, uh, the, the assumption would be someone who can't get into your gym because they live in Edinburgh. Do, do you have a recommendation for a martial art for kids? And do you have a recommendation for a martial art for women slash self-defense? 
if you had to pick sort of something and you don't have access to a you know really sort of a broad base like what you offer and I want and I say listen just where should I take my kid or where does my sister want to go okay speaking about children um without all all and any martial art can help for sure it can help with confidence can help with discipline and general fitness for sure uh to me, for children, the best self-defense style or the style that they need is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, why do I say that? Well, look. If you look at 90%, this is just my figure, you know, there's no statistic review of this. But if you look at the majority of altercations in schools, they are pushing, pulling, throwing to the floor, grabbing hair, kicking, right? They're not Muay Thai matches. They're not boxing fights. It's bullying. They're grabbing you. They want to throw you to the floor and attack you. I, I know this because partly it's common sense. I also know this because of all the reports that I get from uh, the parents of the children that we teach, you know, as time has gone on speaking to the schools, that's what happens. That kind of physical bullying normally takes place like that. So when kids learn stand-up, then they learn the basics, how not to be taken down, how to take other people down, right? Escaping headlocks, defending, protecting against headlocks. Then if they hit the floor, you know, how to protect themselves with frames from underneath, get on top, how to hold them down with the mount. This is the kind of stuff that's going to happen in real life, in the park, you know, in the school playground, where that type of violence, if you want to call it, is going to start, right? There probably isn't much better than that. Um, and I have many examples of that that have come to my knowledge with students at schools that has make us seen that. The other thing as well is, the other slight danger is this. When you have four to six year olds, I know whilst we seems like there's a limit to what they learn, but they learn a lot. They really do learn a lot. But what you don't want to do, in my opinion, is to teach, well, first of all, it's really hard to teach a four, five, six year old to punch and kick properly anyway, right? That's the truth. You have to get down on your knees to pad hold them properly. And, so, and who are they going to spar with? Another four, five, six-year-old? Not really. And then what's the danger? They practice what they know, right? The kid goes to school and maybe lump somebody, starts punching and kicking someone, right? You start to run into problems, right? Whereas maybe if someone attacks them and they know how to keep them away and maybe push them on the floor. I know there is a risk of someone falling and hurting their head. I understand that. But what I'm saying is they're less likely to go to school want to try out what they know by punching somebody in the head or kicking them in the leg. So there are benefits to that. And also with the older kids too, right? So, And every child has got some history of remembering, especially if they've got siblings, rest, what they do, they wrestle, didn't they? wrestle, 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 right? They didn't really get involved in boxing matches. So 
those are the reasons why I think that jiu-jitsu is so great for that. I have many kids who have come to my school who used to train at Japanese jiu-jitsu school. Uh, listen, I'm not bad-mouthing that, but the point is, generally speaking, they don't do much sparring. So they've come, and then they've gotten beaten up by the kids who have sparred, who've been training a quarter of the time they have, because they didn't have much hands-on experience. Right? That's just a fact, right? That's just how it is, yeah. right? Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, a good kid boxer couldn't come in and knock them out, you know, obviously now you're talking somebody who's at the higher echelons of what they do. But, you know, in our in our academy, those kids, they're all pretty tough and they all understand they're hard to put on the floor and they're hard, and they know how to defend against punches because we train them with that. So my opinion is when you're younger, jiu-jitsu for sure, and then start to supplement it as you get older with, with other things. So you asked me about women. Look, it's a bit difficult with women, okay? Because I, I don't believe, when I say I don't believe in the term self-defense, it's very, very hard to create a self-defense course that means anything that lasts for three to four weeks or something. Um, you can always give advice about, you know, self-defense incorporates, don't walk around the street with your phone out. Keep away from dark places. Avoid talking to strangers. I mean, this is self-defense. But from a physical aspect, you could give the best advice ever. Stick your finger in their eye and all that. But believe it or not, if you've never practiced any martial art and you haven't trained any kind of physicality, when the time comes to do something, you won't know how to do it because it was just an idea that you had. So you need to practice something frequently so it becomes part of you and that increases your chances of survival so for a woman whether she decides she wants to do boxing or kickboxing which is perfectly fine or she wants to do jujitsu or capoeira or whatever that's perfectly fine but whatever they do they have to do for a while so that it becomes part of them yeah that's that's the thing yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to just incorporate it into the way you think, the way you move. Yeah, you yeah. have you have to train. You don't, you know, it's it's um, you know, you don't have any choice really. You know, yeah. if you want it to stick. So actually, if I grab my laptop, that's that runs me onto um, onto another question. So on the website, uh, you say or it says uh, that you teach systems and concepts in a structured way resulting in the correct techniques at the right time. Um, and I think um, particularly for jiu-jitsu, this is the thing that I struggled with the most and still, I'm sure, you know, make mistakes all the time. And from talking to other people that uh, certainly kind of beginner level, first year, couple of years, that people struggle with is just knowing what to do. So I'm assuming you've got a pretty systematic way that you approach this and address it yeah so let, let's talk about this for a moment let's talk about the blessing and the curse of jiu-jitsu the blessing of jiu-jitsu is that you're not stuck in one way of doing things you're free to evolve develop according to your body type your age your physical abilities 
and also your mind. Because we, we've got to be honest about some things, right? There are a lot of people out there who are not very bright. It's the real world, right? Just because you start doing jujitsu doesn't make you bright, <laughs> right? Absolutely. You, you know, if, you got, if you're not very smart, doing jujitsu is not going to make you smarter in itself, right? So somebody like that is not necessarily going to get too deep into the complexities of the art because they want everything simple. And we know, we know, according to Master Roger Gracie, that jiu-jitsu is simple, but you just got to do it right. But even him, with his simplicity, is, a, is, is complex in the sense that what he's doing is simplified complexity. Right? He doesn't just do X choke from the mount. It's how he gets the first, his system for getting the first hand in and his methods for getting the second hand in to then finish the choke. Not just I put my hand in and I choke you, right? So, um, so, so what I'm saying first of all then is like, so the blessing of the curse, sorry, I lost my train of thought, the blessing and the curse. So the blessing is your ability to diversify, add, change, modify. The curse is that because there is no unified system of curriculum of jiu-jitsu, and I'm not saying that's a problem, then almost every person who becomes a black belt has their own style of jiu-jitsu. And your style now becomes heavily influenced by two things. One, how and who taught you. And two, who you are. Right? So, if you trained with somebody who was systemized and structured and organized, you are more likely to teach that way later on. Whereas if you train with somebody who only decided that morning what they're going to teach you, you are more likely to teach that way too. That's just a fact. So look, let's get past the fact that it's impossible to create a single unified system of jiu-jitsu because it's impossible. Then you need to start looking at what we think are fundamentals of jiu-jitsu and what you do from each position. This is the mount, this is the half guard, back mount, etc., etc. right? And then you, then you need to start looking at what are the basic essentials of that position from the offensive side or from the defensive side. Can you see how it starts to build? Yeah, absolutely. What's the first thing I need, this, that, and the other, and then you start to move along that path. And then depending on where you are on that path, you will have more things than the person in the beginning. Right? But if you don't have systems, there is no way to properly pass the information along. And there is no way to monitor how well somebody is doing with that. So I'm going to give you an example of one of the systems we use, right? I want to ask you this question. You're in somebody's closed guard. 
Okay? You don't know too much, but you know what you know. You're in somebody's close guard. What, what are the things you are at risk of happening to you in the close guard? Uh, sweep, yeah. submission. Okay, what kind of submissions? Uh, choke, arm bar, I'm a plotter. Um, Triangle. Triangles, yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. So if I said, if I ask you, how do you defend submissions from the close guard? Um, well, I, generally, I, I think I, I want to try and minimise what I'm offering. Mm. So I want to try to to gain posture, and I want to make sure that I'm not leaving anything available for an easy um, attack. So I don't want to stick my arms out. I don't want to let a hand in my collar. I don't want to start getting off balance to either side. So I, I, I guess I'm 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 trying to return as safely and efficiently back to a more neutral position as I can. So, you, you've hit the nail on the head. So, for me then, when we teach a student in close guard, right, one of the first things we teach them is how to posture, which is very specific, how to posture. Um, because most people don't know how to posture properly. Can you can you run through it now, or does it need to be seen? Um, oh, it needs to be seen, but you do need to know how to posture, um, how you pinch your hips, pelvic thrust forward, and keep your body straight. And we have a particular way of teaching you how to posture where you don't rely on your hands. Don't I don't mean you don't use your hands, but you don't rely on your hands. If you rely on your hands when your hands are pulled across, you you fall forward. So you have to rely on the other things first, then your hands are used to escape, not to posture. Um, you know, Seymour, uh, obviously, Seymour Young, we're Katsu, right? He trains with me every week. Yeah, exactly. If you, when you see him next time, if he hasn't already, <laughs> tell him, ask him about the seminar I taught his gym a few years ago. And what we did is we took a bunch of guys in that seminar who basically didn't know how to posture, and we took one particular guy. And by the time we finished the seminar, you couldn't break his posture. And we, we actually got a little video footage of it. I mean, like, you could pull him, yet you couldn't break his posture by the time we finished. I'm I mean, definitely going to ask him. It was very, I mean, I'm literally, it was very hard to break his posture. So, by explaining to a student that in someone's closed guard, the way to defend the triangle, extra arm by omoplata, is by having posture first of all because if you're good at posture it's very hard to be exposed to these things that is more important in the beginning than defending against the escape from the triangle the escape from the armbar and potential escape from the x joke if they're already in it right yep. that's more important there and that would be one of the systems that we use I'm calling it systems. I'm not trying to elaborate, but we have a system for doing that. The second thing, as an essential for your enclosed guard, would be for the student to understand what's the most important thing that you need to do. The most important thing you need to do, in my opinion, 
after you've postured is to stand up. So you have to learn how to stand. So you're not, because you know, you see sometimes people, they're trying to submit somebody from inside their guard. And you see them doing all kind of crazy things. No, 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 no. Don't try and submit someone inside their guard. You need to posture and you need to stand so you can get out. So if you become this white belt, well, after six, nine months, you can't break his posture and he can stand up every time. You're not going to be able to submit this person too easy or even sweep them because they know how to stand and they know how to posture. Yeah. And then now they can get into the situation. Okay, we've got the triangle. All right, this is what you do. You've got the omoplata. This is how you do. Roll this way, roll that way. Whereas what you do, what a lot of people tend to do, they teach them how you escape the triangle, how to escape, blah, blah, blah. But they keep getting in it because mm -hmm. they didn't know how to stop it in the first place. Ultimately, at the end, you need to know both. You need to know how to push it, but it's the order of learning that. Right? Yeah, so, so well, my, my, my question into that is um, how, how do you go about the sort of practicality of that teaching? Because I'm, I'm assuming, maybe not, maybe you, you, you take banks of students in, but I'm assuming you kind of get people starting this week, next week, Monday, sure. Tuesday. I can only train Tuesdays. I keep missing Wednesdays. I'm on holiday for two weeks. So uh, do, do, you, do you sort of have um, like a, a set of uh, systems, techniques whatever that you you're looking for in people as you grade them and and how do you go about kind of ensuring that that that, that is taught in a way that everybody can kind of follow the the path so we have a curriculum okay from a general curriculum from white belt to black belt okay we have one it's a curriculum i created over 10 12 years ago now the thing about this curriculum is that it's not set in stone because most of the things in there will never change. You need to wear uh, extra over, extra under, hip over. They're, they're not going to change. You suddenly didn't wake up and think, I don't need those anymore. They don't change. But the beauty about systems, without sounding complex, is you can have subsystems. So if you take, uh, let's just take half guard for a minute. If you took half guard and said, my basics of half guard is this. I'm underneath. I prefer to have two knees in front of me rather than one knee. Because when they're, you have your upper knee and your bottom knee, your bottom knee is the one they try to step over. Your top knee is the one they want to get inside of or push down. So there's two knee systems. So you always want to have two knees. The very least you have one. And if one knee is taken away, you use the other knee to put the other knee back. That's just part of our general system, right? So you will learn that. And then that might take you up to this point. And then later on, I say later on, you might be teaching in class and go, okay, guys, from here. Now I can do the um, I can do the omoplata from here, or I put the cross grip, or do the X choke, or I go to the knee bar, or I. Now you can start going further down the line. So what we what we do in our academy, and I, you know, I said, and and my associated academies because we have affiliated academies too. So what we do is this: we have two things happening at the same time. I take a theme for about three months, two to three months, because there's no point doing it just for a month because everyone forget it by the time. So two to three months, and the, three, the theme might be we're doing this kind of move from the top, this kind of move from the bottom, um, and maybe we're working on half guard or spider guard. That's the general move for two to three months. But along that, we have our list of fundamentals, which are always there. Make sure that the student knows how to posture from the guard. 
they know how to escape from side control, etc. So those basics remain the whole time, although we're working on this curriculum. So what will happen is we might have a class where we're, we have um, a mixture of students, which is kind of typical. And you look in that class and whilst we're working on this, you realize or you see that these guys don't know any of this. So we'll say, okay, well, you guys, we're going to work on this separate thing. And it might sound a bit complicated because you, it's quite easy to do if you know what you're doing, right? And very often you can teach the same thing to everybody, but at different levels. I was teaching a, a no-gi class this morning. And in the no-gi class, we had some white belts and we had some uh, purples and browns. And we did a takedown section, but then you know, we hit the floor. We ended up doing outside heel hook from a particular position. So the, the, the white belts, we just looked at the real basic entry into it. And they stopped there. Whereas those who knew more, we had the basic entry, we had the roll and the re-roll, catch them on the other side. You know what I mean? We took that bit further down for those people, whereas the other people, we stopped over there with that. So I reiterate, there is no perfect way of covering everybody. It's very difficult when you have a large number of students, or even a few, right? Like you said, some come once a week, two times a week, twice a day, it all varies. But this makes it all the more reason why you need to have a structure, because if you don't, it just becomes chaos. You just kind of give in, oh, I can't do this, it's too complicated, I'm just going to just do this and see what happens. And in a few years, they'll be good. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's you, kind of what my training looks you, like you, sometimes. You have to take ownership of that. When I say you, it's my job. They're not just paying me, in my opinion, to come and just, you know, uh, just train and have a good sweat and go home. It's my job to educate them. Let me ask you this, right? I know what the answer will be already. But let me ask you this. Uh, you decided to become a doctor, a lawyer, a plumber, an electrician, a massage therapist, and you went to a course and you signed up and you paid your money. What would you expect them to give you at the very least? A fundamental understanding of what I need to do my job. But in what form would that normally come? Uh, well, lectures, and? backup material. Right. You would have yeah. something, you would have some document which says this is the course outline this is what we're going to do right yeah. and then we go to jiu-jitsu and you go there and nobody tells you anything nobody gives you anything you just turn up if you just caught it if you were there and if you didn't catch it you didn't catch it there's no curriculum there's no guideline nothing imagine your doctor learned that way he just turned up every day oh i missed that course on heart open heart surgery but i could do it now right so but what I'm saying is, if you're serious about learning, it doesn't matter what you're learning, there needs to be some of the core elements of how you learn. And I know everybody learns differently, or can learn differently, but you still need some material to draw from, however you do it. And if you look at the best out there, they all have it. They all have it. I, I mean, listen, there is what I do, 
But I'm looking at other people for guidance and for influences, right? I'm looking at that, right? So, you know, even my own martial arts academy, the physical academy, I make no secret, I modeled it on art of jiu-jitsu. Now, when I say I modeled it on art of jiu-jitsu, I looked at it and I thought, wow, it's so clean. I mean, it's white, but it looks so clean. The students all look dressed nice, you know what I mean? Everything looks so professional. I want to be like that. That's what I thought, right? I want to I'll be like that. If you come to my academy, it's not all white. We have white walls and gray walls. We're white and gray. And orange. We have a little bit of orange. We put a white canvas down at home because of that. Yeah. But do you understand what I'm saying? I modeled myself. I want to, I, that was a physical thing. I want, I want to look like that. I want people to see pictures and think, wow, that's amazing. Right? That was where my inspiration came from. And that's why we have white geese. Because we can see if it's dirty, right? Everything is clean and it's uniform, even though you can be individual. It's a martial arts academy. That's my concept of it, right? So even when I trained with Dan in Santos, one of the first very things I noticed is he had he would bring out his manual and he'd say, Okay guys, and he would show you, look, over here and then and then we, we got given instructor manuals. Right, with what they were. I mean, the manuals, if you didn't know what he was talking about, they made no sense. You still had to ask, oh, what does that mean? Oh, subsystem, this, that, that, and the other. But there was some guidance for you to go and learn, right? So, you know, I don't think anything I'm saying is, is controversial. I don't think anything I'm saying anybody should really disagree with. I mean, I'm, I, I, I know everything is not like that. But I'm saying that there should be some guidance as to Absolutely. learning. That's all I'm saying. How individuals choose to do it is down to them. I happen to be very organized and only because I was a lawyer for a long time and I am, so it's not hard for me to structure a class, structure some notes about what I want to do. For I'm going to have to sit down and do it. But it's not hard for me because I'm used to reading, I'm used to writing, I'm used to seeing things in black and white. It's not hard for me, and I appreciate it might be harder for other people, right? And I've helped people recruit me. But what I'm saying is, just because it may be hard for you, don't think it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be there. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely... It's one of the conversations I had early on with Nick, which was a really short conversation, was um, I was asking him, look, is there is there a way that I could create some kind of document to understand kind of what you're talking about, you know, what I should be learning in what order of importance, etc. And, um, you know, I think the, the, the advice very much was, listen, you just need to turn up and train, which I, I, I understand that advice because I'm, I'm sure you would agree, you do need a lot of mat time. You know, you, like you say, you can kind of learn things in theory, but it's not the same as being able to do them in practice and having the, that, that, that real feedback of, okay, so I grab the trousers here, I grab the sleeve here, I move here and nothing happens. So what am I doing wrong? I need to adjust and adjust and, and, and make it, you know, so it works. But I think absolutely, you know, that um, kind of more structured way of doing things and having the supporting material is um is really important because like you say you know everybody kind of learns in a different way 
So for some people, they, they don't really need to look at that manual. And for some people, that changes their whole kind of way of, of, of picking things up. So we, I try to cater for everybody, but not in a, not, not, not in a, a jack-of-all-trades way, but I try to cater for everybody. So what do I mean by that? You get, these are the types of different types of learners. I may mess someone out, but in general, you get those that learn best by doing, feeling touch. You get those that learn best by looking and watching, right? And you get those that learn best when it's written, like either writing it themselves or seeing it written, right? So in every class, what will happen is I have three whiteboards in my gym situated around the gym depending on where it's quite and we've got decent size so three whiteboards so what happened is when i teach i'll use the right okay guys number one is power in numbers one this two three I might just say three things and at the end of the class i said the guys take a picture if you want it's up to you i don't force them it's up to you and it's almost like okay and a lot of people do so it's one two three so they see the written on the board one two three and sometimes they remember oh yeah one two three Right? For somebody else, it's listening to me saying it. One, two, three. The first thing, the second thing, the third thing. They're hearing me say. Another one, you do the first one, you've done the second one, he remembers one, two, three. Then, of course, you get those who learn by a combination of others. So they did it, and it was on the board. Or they saw it, and they felt it. So by doing it that way, we tend to catch most different types of learners if that makes sense rather than you know listen i i've been taught jujitsu by somebody who definitely had no clue what he was going to teach before he came to class guaranteed right that coupled with what was the norm no written notes, no structure, nothing. I mean, it's just like you literally got what you got when you turned up. And there was definitely no structure to it. Uh, that wasn't good for me because it was just, you're just working in the dark. And the general standard, I mean, they they were good guys because they rolled a lot. They trained and you went, and that's why I was explaining to you about the blessing and the curse of jiu-jitsu because the blessing is if you just rolled around with someone for six months, you would have some clue. You would, you'd pick up some stuff, but you would have so many holes if you weren't guided. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. You'd figure it out to an extent, but that you'd be behind, in my opinion, someone else. As opposed to the guy who's got all the manuals, all the knowledge, and can quote it. Mm, power 2.3, yes, we can do it. And they don't roll, right? That's another Muppet, right? Do you understand what I'm saying, right? So what you want is somebody who rolls and who studies a little bit, right? Just a combination for you. you know, that's what I'm saying. You need you need both. And, right? and what kind of split do you, do you have a split that you encourage in terms of how much time you are learning, drilling, practicing against typ- rolling time? Yeah, a typical. I've always been. In, I have to be honest. I've always been influenced by uh, something. I'll probably quote it wrong. Something Master Hicks and Gracie said a long time ago. He he said that, you know, the smallest percentage of time in the class, if I, I'm probably quoting him wrongly, but was sparring. Because 
they do warm up, do the drills, do the techniques, and then you have sparring at the end. That's in a regular class. So my regular class would be, if it's an hour and a half, which a lot of them are, because some people only have an hour, that's fine, but proportionally an hour and a half, you get 15 minutes of warm-up, different types, but 15 minutes of warm-up. And then in a typical class, we will always do stand-up, always, pretty much. Stand-up technique, and then a floor technique, and I say a technique, maybe not one, but something on the floor, something standing in accordance with what we're working, and then it will come to sparring. And the sparring will either be specific sparring or regular sparring, because it's difficult to do them both in the in a time of a class. You're either just going to do rounds of specific or you're going to do rounds of sparring, right? And typically at the end of a class, we'll do 20 minutes, maybe four or five rounds, right? But we have other classes where there's open mats where you can just come and spar. Do you understand what I'm saying? To practice what you've learned or to come and drill what you've learned. Right? If we're going for comps, we change some of the classes. Okay, now we have more sparring and the training is centered around those essentials you need for the comp. So we can change and tailor it, right? But in a regular class, you know, like sort of your bread and butter, warm-up, stand-up technique, something on the floor, sparring or specific sparring. Right? Generally. Yeah. And then we have, we have a dedicated fundamentals class once a week. I wasn't sure it was going to work. It's super popular. Everybody loves it. And in that class, the main difference between that fundamental class and all the other classes, there's no sparring. None in that class. And it's great. Limited warm-up, technical, no sparring. And it's great because you don't have to worry about crushed or being crushed. It's the time for you to learn and add knowledge. Ask questions. And we pass that over. Now you can go and use that in the sparring class next week or your next lesson. If someone said, I can only do fundamentals class every week, I'll tell them, look, it's good. You'll learn something, but at some point you need to do some sparring. So you can't just do the fundamentals class with no sparring. So you can see there's no magic one solution for everything. You do need to do a bit of everything. Uh, I mean, if somebody could only do one class a week, I'd, regular, I'd recommend they do at least one of the normal classes where you get the warm-up, the stand-up, and, and the progress will be slow, but at least you get to do some sparring when you're able to. So that maybe that's that's a nice lead into um, any kind of uh, optimum or, or, or what you've learned over time in terms of frequency of training, supplementary training, especially as we, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about um, training for such a long time and being uh, an older athlete. Um, so maybe maybe I could ask you initially, have, have you ever had any bad injuries or even sort of, you know, niggling recurrent stuff that's been, would have been avoidable or, you know, how you've rehabbed it? And, and then do you, do you sort of have any guidance on how hard you should be training, how many times a week, what you should be doing, you know, to, to supplement? Sure. I mean, look. Here's the thing. If you train a martial art, in order to do that martial art to the best of your ability, you, need, you should be in shape, good shape, as you can be. Right? 
But being in good shape or super strong or super fit is not everything. Because we all know that an untrained, uh, a physically, or a, a, if you get an untrained grappler, I'm using grappling now, an untrained grappler who is very fit, runner, everything, he'll be dead in three minutes. We all know that. But hang on, I want to be as strong as him, I want to be as fit as him. But you just killed him in three minutes when you're not as fit as him, as you're not as strong. So what does that tell you? It tells you that having that level of skill is important, right? Which is different to fighting the guy with the same level of skill as you, who is fitter and stronger. That's different, right? So your primary emphasis should always, in my opinion, be on the development of your skill, right? But you obviously need some physicality in order to employ it properly. Right? But you roll with a guy who's a, maybe a cardio machine. You, may, and ten, you might roll with him for 10 minutes. You may not catch him in 10 minutes, depending on the level. But he ain't catching you if he doesn't know anything. Because you're just going to be able to keep moving, moving. But he's got no chance of submitting you because he has no skill, if that makes sense. So it's finding that balance. Right, so as when what normally happens is with the younger guys is because they don't have to worry about cardio and they don't worry so much about strength, they just crack on and train a lot and train hard, and they only worry about when they get an injury, right? But you, what the bit they don't see is if they don't do the proper rehabbing and they don't train properly, they will wear themselves out too early. Right? They will wear themselves out. And you see it a lot. I okay, let's let's give some examples. I mean the Meow brothers, I remember when they came onto the scene, blue belts, whatever. And they achieved a lot of success in their game. I think those guys are a little bit nuts, and I say it in a nice way because they allowed things to happen to their bodies that shouldn't happen. I mean, you know, especially footlocks, they don't tap to it. You see pictures of them with one ankle six times the size of the other and things like that. But their bodies are broken. And I don't know this intimately, but you look, see the finger knuckles all bust up, ankles all bust up. They're not even, I don't, they're not even 30. I don't think those guys, I'm, I mean, you know, right? 27, 28, okay? And I don't want to be like that. Do you know what I mean? Have that short career and then your body's busted up at the end of it where you can't do anything herniated disc ankles can't walk because the key thing you find when you're an older person is you actually want to be able to walk you want to be able to if you've got a family you want to be able to go play football with them in the park or something like that you want to be able to do those things because don't forget your living life because because at the end of the day the majority of us are not going to be world champions right and even if you are a world champion, so what if you can't walk later on and you can't move around later on? So um, so when I was younger, I never really used to lift any weight. Now I lift weights because I need to because everyone seems so much stronger. So I'm lifting weight in order to give my body a, a resistance, right? And to stay strong couple of times a week it varies i try i try to train about three times a week yeah i'll fit it into my regime sometimes i don't i try 
The key thing that I do now that I never used to do before because I just didn't appreciate and understand the importance of it is I go to the sauna. I'll do sauna and plunge pool, right? Um, I try to get there two to three times. I try to, right? Um, all of these things you've got to factor in cost, right? Well, where do you go, right? Do you go to David Lloyd's and pay it? Or do you go to your mate who's got... A I mean, you know, you've got to factor all of these things into... Do you know what I mean? All these things have to be factored into. But the point I'm making is I never used to do that, and now I do. You don't have room for a sauna and a plunge pool at the gym? <laughs> no, no, we don't. That would be nice, but we don't. But, you know, so I do that now for recovery. of it, And I stretch all the time. I mean, things like yoga, amazing. You should do yoga, movement stuff. You should do it. You know, you should do something to keep yourself moving and you need to prioritize that as an older grappler who's in control by the way and i say in control because i run the academy i decide who i roll with and when i roll it's slightly different when you're a student but even then you still have some control no instructor is going to make you roll if you say look i just want to roll two three or a couple rolls today because my back's hurting and i certainly wouldn't say go and I'm able to judge whether you're just being a wuss, do you understand? Or whether you're just protecting your body, right? So, um, you know, you, 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 so like even me, I roll when I, there's certain training sessions I do in a week. So normally I train, I do one to two hard rolling sessions in a week, right? That's me. Be an hour. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have open mats and I have guys come and we roll and I roll the 18, 21, 23-year-old, 90 kilos, 100 kilos. I roll with those guys. You know, I do one kind of hard rolling session a week in the gi and one hard rolling session in the no gi in a week, right? I tend not to roll in the classes that I'm teaching because I'm teaching, right? I have to focus on what I'm doing. I'll, sometimes I will do it. Student is there, blah, 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 smaller number. Yeah, I'll do it, but I don't generally tend to do that. Right, so, um, but again, it's just, it's just keeping that balance, looking after yourself. There are a lot of people who get an injury and think it's going to go away by magic. Right? Oh, my knee hurts. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm just going to leave it and see how it goes. Six months later, they're still limping. Have you seen anyone about your knee? No, no. I'm just waiting for it to get better. I've heard that so many times because they're scared. They put their head in the sand. Listen, if your knee is torn, you need to find out anyway. Go and get, see the GP. If you've got, if it's not private, it's going to take six months anyway. Go see the GP, get referred for the MRI, they'll send you to visit. You, it's going to take long anyway. So you might as well get the ball rolling, right? But people are scared. They're scared that if, if, if they tell me this, it becomes real, right? You owe it to yourself to, to check your body out, right? If you had somebody who was a family member and they were unwell, you'd say, man, you need to go see the doctor. Right? You would. Or you need to get it checked up. When it comes to ourselves, we're like, no, I don't think I'm going to do it. I'm going to leave it for a couple of months and see how I feel. You know? And and they could be making something worse. Right? You know, listen, real life is real life, okay? The, the body changes as you get older, okay? And you need to do what you can do to stay fit, healthy, and young, right? And the fact is, all injuries take longer to recover as you get older. And some may never fully recover. If you have a ligament issue, that will never fully recover. Because ligaments, as you know, when they stretch, they don't go back. They shorten. 
There's nothing you can do about that kind of stuff, right? Um, but you do need to, you know, have some care and and look at if if you. I'm not trying to say, yeah, oh yeah, I'm special. But if you if you look at me, I don't have cauliflower ears. There's a reason for that, right? My fingers fingers do not look like popcorn, right? There is a reason for that because I take my fingers before I train every time over the knuckles to reduce the risk of calluses, right? I don't headbutt people when I'm sparring. I do wrestling. I do nogi. Um, but I make sure I move my head in such a way that I'm not going ear to ear with people. It's different till you get one bang and that can blow up. But I've been doing jiu-jitsu since 1996, 97. I got my blue belt in 98 or 99, whenever it was. And I've competed and everything. And I don't have cauliflower ears. And there's a reason for it, right? Um, a lot of people train. Let me ask you a question. Just you. When you spar, do you wear mouth guard? Yes. All right. How many people? Do you, there's still people in your gym in it who train without mouth guard. Loads. Right? And respectfully, they're muppets. Right? You were trained without a mouth guard, your team's going to get knocked out. I mean, I put mine in for normal class. Yeah, I don't. But if I'm sparring, the mouth guard comes out. Because accidents happen. Right? You know, the guy's moving his knee, hits you in the mouth, his elbow, right? And then your tooth is on the floor, then you're going to the dentist spending £2,500 for an implant or something. Why? Why You should be wearing mouth guard. And this is what I'm saying. Is if you're not going to wear a mouth guard, you don't really have any consideration for your health or your safety because it will happen. And I see them and I tell them and then they, see, they get in their mouth. I say, okay, well, I hope you're all right. And I just think, I told you, get a mouth guard, right? As an example. And you will never get people to all people to wear a mouth guard because this is the world of human beings where some will, some won't, some do and some don't, right? Depends on their experiences. I've had my tooth nearly knocked out before when I wasn't wearing a mouth guard and now I know, right? That's the, that's the hard way to learn, right? Funnily enough, funnily enough, the one time my tooth actually nearly did get knocked out, it was Nick Brooks. Me and him were sparring together and his knee just went right, woo, my tooth. And it was, it was one of those things, right? Oh, shit. Uh, I had to try and push my tooth back in my hair, root canal, all this kind of stuff, blah, blah, blah. Always wear mouth guard when I'm training, right? But that's me, you know. So, um, so look, uh, all I'm saying is as you get older, and it depends what older means for you, you know, you should be, even if you train a lot on your 22, supplements, rehab, you know, stuff like that. Because when we talk about supplements, look, the reality is, whether you're older or you're young, there are things that you lose with age because the body doesn't produce them anymore. And whilst it's not quite the same, it's akin, stroke similar to somebody who... If you train a lot, five times in the week, you are burning, you are using more protein, more vitamins, more minerals than somebody who is not training five times a week. So therefore you need to supplement your body to make up for your loss, to put you back to equal. But when you don't, now you're creating a deficiency in your body, which is now going to be detrimental to you all the time. Simple. Right? Yeah. 
that's it. You don't have to be a, a genius or a rocket scientist to get too complex about it. But you do need to recover. And it's the same with lift weights, right? Even if you just go and do a weight session, you start burning your muscle and fiber. You need protein to, you know, supplement you. That's it, you know. So, so one of the things that you uh, mentioned just again before we started recording was was some sort of specific ways of teaching or training or learning. Was there something that you wanted to cover that you had in mind or no? No, I think I mean we covered most of it in terms of you know like how we teach, how you train, how you learn. You know all those you know different ways, um, and I think. I think there were two things I think I would say. There was this responsibility of the student and the responsibility of the teacher. So here's a phrase that I use a lot, which I believe to be true. It's more important to be a good student than it is to have a good teacher. I'll say it again. It's more important to be a good student than it is to have a good teacher. Let me explain. In an ideal situation, ideal situation is, when I say is, like John Danaher and Gordon Wright, ideal type. So what you have is clearly a good teacher and clearly a good student, right? He turns up, he works hard, he competes. He's obviously very smart. Whatever you think about him, he's obviously very smart. Do you know what I mean? He understands. So he's a good student, right? And you have a good teacher. That combination potentially shows what is achievable, right? But why I say it's important to be a good student, more important than it is to have a good teacher, is because if you're a good student, you will have an inquisitive mind and you want to learn. And when you want to learn, that sets you on the path of learning. So you will start to research a little bit. And then by researching, you will learn more. Right? So obviously, if you do have a good teacher as well, that's great. You know, because he will help you with your learning. He will help you with other things. You can have that dialogue and you carry on. But you could be the best teacher in the world and have a bad student. That student, listen, I'll be straight. I've taught. I've been teaching martial arts in one form or another since 1988, if not before, I was teaching. I taught very badly in the beginning because I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I kind of fell into it and I was still young and I taught many things badly. I fully accept, especially when I look back, it's like, man, I taught a lot of crap. But um, you have to, you know, you, you have to invest in your studies, you know, to, to, to try to improve. And the story of people teaching badly before is so common. It's just that some people who taught badly before still do. So let me tell you a little story, which is quite interesting. Um, uh, in my jiu-jitsu journey, which I won't bore you with too much right now, but in my jiu-jitsu journey, I was, I didn't go to class very much because in my day, early days of jiu-jitsu, there were no real proper schools. There were just a few dotted around. So 
I used to go to America and train and come back, but it's not like I had mats and all. I would roll around with a few. It was just a little part of it. It was not, and I was working and everything, you know. So it wasn't something that, uh, you know, like now where people are blessed to have a jiu-jitsu academy everywhere they go, right? Um. So. In my jiu-jitsu journey, uh, I was blessed and fortunate to have jiu-jitsu brown belts and black belts come and teach me privately in my house every week. I was lucky because I was able to afford... It wasn't that, actually, it wasn't that expensive in the scheme of things. But I was lucky that I was able to afford it. I had a space. Uh, and this is from about like 2000 onwards, right? So I was still a purple belt. In fact, I mentioned that in 2006... Um, I got my purple belt in 2005, September. In 2006, I had Ricardo Vieira, nine-time world champion then, come and stay at my house for two weeks, right? And he was going off, to, I had an arrangement, he was going off teaching seminars, but he stayed at my house for two weeks. I trained with him sort of every day for two weeks. That's when he gave me that nickname, right? I was able to do that because there was no school, well, per se, there was a little bit, but there was no school. Uh, and actually, I was training in a school then, but, I was able to get him to come in. And then over the years, I was having people fly into me. And it sounds more elaborate than it really was. They were coming into the country, please come and teach me at my house. And I would pay for it, right? And I had some of the greatest people, Adolfo Vieira, I had Julio, Julio, I think Julio Cesar, and the head of GFT, I'm sorry, I apologize because I, I do know his name. He came taught me a session at my house, sparred with me, we filmed it, right? Obviously, De La Hiva, who's my teacher, came to my... I've had so many people, JT Torres, Chris Houter, uh, Alan Finfo, Nassien. I mean, I've had so many people come to my house, stay in my house, teach me and train me, making my notes, practicing, learning, right? And I was lucky that I was able to do that, right? And I learned how they teach, I learned what they taught, you understand what I'm saying? And try to apply it for myself. Um, and obviously going to America and training with, you know, with different people and so on and so forth. So that was the way that, that I learned. But what was very interesting is I had a period where I had two or three Brazilians teaching me at a time where they were illegal over here, right? So they were teaching me. And unfortunately, I might have been the jinx because after a few months, they got deported. <laughs> I think somebody reported them, but it definitely wasn't me because it was in my interest. Anyway, one of the guys that was teaching me for several months, and he's one of, the, and he's he's the one of the guys who jointly awarded me my black belt. He wasn't there, but he made the authorization because he was in Brazil. Was um, Rodrigo, Professor Rodrigo Cabral. His nickname is Brucutu. I'll tell you about him in a second. But he was a 21-year-old brown belt from Brazil. He'd done capoeira, gymnastics. He was a physical specimen, backflips, this, that. And he used to come to my house and teach me every week. What really happened is he came every week and kicked the crap out of me in a nice way, but I couldn't do anything. He taught me techniques, but I never got, I never even swept him. I never did anything against him. Because at that time, there weren't that many good people here. I was maybe maybe one of the better ones in his circle in London, right? And, he, and I was like, someone to spar with, really. So he just sparred and beat me up. And eventually he got deported and he left and we stayed in contact and blah, 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 blah. So he was like 21, 22. Now he is the instructor of William Tackett, 
Cody Steele and his brother, the Tackett brothers. He's got, he's the owner of uh, Brazilian Fight Factory in Texas. One of the biggest martial arts academy there, right? More 20 plus black belts, 45 plus brown belts because we went through the figures. 50 purple, but I mean, he's a king. He's re doing really well, gi, no gi. And, he's, and he came over uh, two, three months ago and did a seminar at my academy for the first time. And it was really funny because after the seminar, we were talking and he said to me, Onuma, I feel so bad. I said, what's the matter? He said, I feel so bad, you know, because when we used to train, I know I didn't teach you nothing. I just beat you up. I, because he evolved, you know what I mean? He grew up, he moved to America, you know, started teaching, became structured, organized. And when he taught the seminar, it was fantastic. It was so structured and it was like night and day. This is the system we use here. We do this, we follow this, we do that. If the guy, and it was like, wow, this was amazing, right? But it was funny to watch the evolution, right? But imagine if I taught the way he taught me then, right? And said, that's how I learned, that's how I'm doing it. Nobody's going to learn too much, right? But that's, it was great because it was fantastic to see him evolve. It was great because he was honest with me and said, you know, I, I realized I didn't really teach you much there. Yeah, and it's great to see him doing so well, teaching these guys, you know, head instructor of one, you know, fourth degree black belt under Leo Vieira. You know what I mean? Um, and I think most people are kind of heading that way. You can't, especially if you live in America as well, they, they're fairly well organized. You know what I mean? You can't just turn up, you know, you know they run businesses, you know, just force them to evolve and develop in certain ways, you know. But, um, yeah, you, you, you can't just turn up and hit and hope. Things have evolved too much now, you know. Yeah, I think, I mean, hopefully that that's kind of one of the, the, the things you learn broadly as you get older, is that you, you can't just literally hit and hope because that, that kind of youthful exuberance leaves you, right? It comes down to actually does this stuff that I'm doing work? Is it practical? Do I understand it properly? You kind of lose almost the luck, if you like, of, 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 of being young. I think one of the greatest things I learned, I don't know that you asked me, I think one of the greatest things I learned as a teacher is that no matter what you say or do, they're not all going to listen to you. And it's learning to accept that. Yeah, this is one of the things that, I've, I've said this on the podcast many times, that Nick used to uh, always say when he used to give a blue belt out, he always used to say, um, tonight another nobody becomes a somebody. And, you know, I mean, you know Nick better than I do, but, but you know, on, on the one hand, it was kind of Nick's joke and, you know, just kind of his sort of flippant nature. But on the other hand, you know, as, as I kind of realised over time, it was that you, you do get so many people that they're going to train 15 times a week and this and that and the other and they're amazing they're learning really fast and then they just kind of drop away or they don't don't sort of pursue it and uh i i guess after you see that so many times i mean this is this is something that some other uh, people that i've had on the podcast other instructors have said to me you know that you 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 really invest in students and you become attached to students and and they disappear and you kind of feel like you lose a little bit of your energy maybe I, I think i'm slightly different in that i mean i i 100 definitely understand the concept right and and the thing now look 
I, when I say I've been around long enough to know, and live life long enough to know that, excuse the French, shit happens. So people will come, people will go. Work changes, family changes. I've got a few guys now that they're at home. They just had a child, so they disappeared for a little bit, right? You know, injury, whatever, right? There's so many things happening. You, you, you just, people just have to live their life. I can only, I, I don't, I don't judge, and I tell everybody, I don't judge you by why you're not here. I only judge you by what you do when you are here. If that makes sense. If you're here and I think you're not training properly, I will tell you. But if you're not here for six months. Of course, if the person tells me I'm off because of this and that, I understand. But I don't think they're a lesser person because they're not here. If you can only come once a week, do your best and come once a week, right? Uh, but so if somebody trains and they think it's not for them and they leave, well, it's a shame, all right, off you go, mate, because that's how life is, right? If somebody was training with me and they wanted to leave because they felt that I wasn't a good enough teacher or they felt my environment wasn't for them, I'm really comfortable with that, right? Because I'm comfortable with me. It's not my way or the highway. This is how we do things here because I know what environment we create. I know, uh, listen, this isn't about, uh, there is a difference between confidence, cockiness, and, and uh, being arrogant. I think it's important to know who you are and what you are because when you do know who and what you are, that helps you to evolve and know where you're weak right i know that i'm a good teacher because i am and i've proven it i know i'm good at jujitsu because i know and i've proven it right so i don't have to argue with anybody about that right i don't need to know if i'm better than that guy or that guy i just know what i'm good at right so i don't therefore i don't have that kind of conflict and if somebody wants to disagree with me about something and i think they're wrong, okay cool no problem right so I become quite relaxed about that, and I fo and I focus on those who want to be here and want to f trust how I teach and crack on. That's all I can focus on, right? Because you focus on things that are beyond your control, it, it, it's not going to work out, right? Um, and so, you know, like I said, it's, this is just part of being a little bit older, part of, and also I don't want to carry that that stress. I've I have because I've been as I said, I've been around a long time. We've I've promoted many black belts over the years. Initially, some of the black belts I promoted were with the consent of my teacher because I wasn't second degree, you know what I mean? And then since second degree, uh, I've been able to promote people myself. And, you know, come October this year, I'll be eligible, come eligible for my fourth degree, right? So I've given out, I say, many black belts over the years. And in our team, now training with us, we have over 20, 25 black belts in our organization, which is small compared to, you know, the bigger names. But, you know, we've got guys, you know, third degrees and second degrees and first degrees and so on and so forth. Okay. Um, so we're just trying to evolve. We're just trying to keep to a high standard. So we can keep the you know the jujitsu going. We talk about you know we don't just turn up one day and decide to promote someone. We have graduations at set times, and we look back how often have they trained, have they competed, how are they doing? Okay, then we can do this or do that, right? Rather than hey, you rolled well today, here man, have a stripe. 
You need to sweat me today. Here, have a, I know there are some instructors that do that because they're not organized. They don't know. I run the camera with 250 kids. I know exactly how all of them train. I know how often they come. I know what hours they've done. I know what belt. There's work that goes into it. There is work that goes into it. Do you think art of jiu-jitsu with all their things could run an academy without being organized? In fact, we have no idea how really organized they are. They are even far more organized than we realize. And you get an insight into some of it when you watch some of their stuff on YouTube and they've got their sheets and their computers and they know who the students are and when they've been training and so on and so forth. And I'm just using them as an example because why not, right? I'm not going to talk about the one nobody's heard of doing nothing. Right? So, um, yeah, like I said, each to their own. Um, people will be different. Schools will be different depending on, you know, who the instructors are, their background, their lineage, their expertise. Does this make one person better than another? No, not really. You know, it just depends on, on what you want. There are so many people out there doing amazing jobs, right? Hard work ethic, tough, you know. You know, Ross Nichols has got London Grapple, right? We're both Tatami-sponsored athletes, and I'm not using that as a plug. We're both Tatami-sponsored athletes, but what's nice is I've seen him go over this little, you know, blue, purple, brown belt, going through the ranks, you know, getting to ADCC, stopping JT Torres, who I know from passing his guard, you know, opening his academy. Now he's a successful instructor and still one of the top competitors. I mean, you know, when you see that, he didn't do that by accident. You know what I mean? That's not by accident. That's like... If you, I'm sure if you talk to him, you'll get more of the real story. But he's hardworking, you know, built an academy and he's doing really... And when you see things like that, it's like, man, that's amazing. Congratulations to you. I never see somebody who's doing well and think, wanker. Do you know what I mean? I, you know, I might say that about somebody who genuinely is one, but it won't be because of your success. You know what I mean? I don't... If someone's doing well, I'm always happy for them, whoever they are. Right, I think if if you're yourself, if you're in a good place, yeah, then you 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 like to see that um, other people are in a good place as well. I think I think that's kind of where it comes from. If you're struggling, there's things that you haven't dealt with, or you know, don't make you happy. You then project that to other people, and you know, that thing, I think that's where that that mentality comes from. So, are you you competing anymore? Have you got plans to compete? Yeah, I listen. I I haven't retired yet. Um, so I tend to compete a couple of times a year, you know, and um, last year I did uh, Abu Dhabi. Ooh, what were you, William? 2023, 2022? Did I do that 2022? I think I did um, Abu Dhabi Pro in London last year. I think I took a silver with that. Um, and I went to the Europeans, no gi. Frustratingly, got a bronze there. Um, so I did a couple of comps last year. This year... Um, I will do, uh, is that a fight this year really? I can't remember. Anyway, this year uh, I'll go to Nogi Europeans. I might do the National Masters in Hereford in September. We'll see. So I, I, I tend to do a couple of times a year, you know, just to keep my hand in. And also because I like it, you know. But, you know, I don't have to compete every week or anything like that. And I like to, you know, I'm trying to compete in things where a little bit different to to what I've done before. I'm trying to do a bit more no-gi, you know, to test and challenge that part of myself. Um, and, um, and, yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm doing it for me, not for anybody else. I don't really have anything else to prove. 
you know, it'd be nice to go and I've not, I've not, I've not won a world championship medal. I'm sorry, I've not won the worlds in the Masters. Um, it'd be lovely to do that. That may still happen, whether it's in the gear or no gear. I've been there on the podium many times, you know. Um, and uh, you know, black belt, I've won Europeans many times. You know, I've beaten world champions. So you know, it's like, and I've been beaten too. You know, my my win record is a lot better than my loss record, right? So. Um, so now it's just for me, you know, it's always kind of been for me, but this is for me still. I enjoy doing it and I'll, you know, I'll do it and keep myself going. Yeah, that's it. When I'm ready to retire, I'll retire, but not quite yet. And uh, have you, do you have any regrets, sort of martial arts career regrets, things that you, apart from maybe not training judo with your uni <laughs> guy? <laughs> um, regrets. Mm. Regrets. Not, not really. I mean, like, I think, I think, if if there, I think everything that happens to you is a part of life, right? And there were some people who trained with me in the past that no longer train with me, right? And when I look back at that, um, with those things, some of us we we probably agree that. They're happy not to be with me, and I'm happy for them not to be with me, right? Because, you know, um, people are people, you know, uh, and and some some people don't gel, right? So, I I don't do I regret them coming to train in the first place. It's pointless because it's how life is. They you were introduced to them, they train, they stay, and they go, right? It, it's but they do teach you lessons. They do help to teach you lessons. Um, I've learned, one of the things I've learned, and I know you asked me if it's regret, but what I've learned is um, always to be wary of what I call self-serving individuals. There are those who um, uh, look and smell like they're one thing, but they're really something else. Their interest is only their own. Um, and they disguise it so well because because what's happening is it suits them at the time. You know, I'm talking about the person who helps the lady cross the road to the other side. Looks like they're doing a good thing, but they're doing it because it serves them a purpose rather than serving the old lady a purpose. But don't, don't you think ultimately most of, most of what drives human actions is that in, in some way? Self, I mean, self-serving? Yeah. No, no. Not, not, not exclusively to, you know, to the detriment of the other party, but um, you know, I mean, like for example, with your teaching with the academy, I mean, I, from talking to you, I can tell you love teaching, you love being there, so you, you probably get as much out of it, you know, your purpose, your the way you fill your day, the way you f you fill your time, the way you support yourself financially is doing something you love. So. I mean, it's, it's maybe it's a maybe it's a sort of a not not a black and white thing, you know. There's a grey area in between, but I think most of what drives what we do in some way is self-serving. Yeah, but a, a true self-serving individual. This is just my opinion. When you until you've really met one and then seen a full circumstances, that's when you understand. And and listen, what I'm saying to you: a true self-serving individual pretty much does 
nothing unless it serves them. And it's a difficult, there are not many of those creatures, but they do exist. It's only when you realize that, that that's the case, then you realize, oh, wow. Right? Because we all have compassion within us. You know, we all do things. We've all done good things. And listen, even some of the good things I've done, they've had a beneficial effect to me. Because if I help you and you feel good, I feel good too. Right? So does that make me self-serving? Maybe, a little bit to a certain extent, right? Because it's serving me because it makes me feel good. If I buy you coffee, I'm, man, you're, I'm buying you coffee, you have coffee, I have coffee, you feel good, it's great. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I'm not buying you coffee to make you think nicer of me. But, man, I'm having coffee, have coffee. Next time you go shop, you might buy coffee and buy me a coffee too. It's, you know, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not doing it just to achieve something, you know? And I think that, but you know, look, th these are different kind of life lessons because you, you need to be, you also need to be selfish a little bit, right? Because if you're not, you now end up giving too much of yourself away with leaving nothing for yourself. Because, and I give an example, you could be the person everybody calls, can I help, can you do this, can you do that, can you do this, can you do that, can you do this, can you do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you realize you've got nothing for yourself. You can't even help yourself. So you're selfless, but now you run into problems because you didn't leave anything for yourself. Yeah. Right? And then the selfish person who's given nothing to anybody else. To give, do you know what I mean? There's always, that's what I'm saying, there's always balance. I'm not trying to teach anybody about life. I mean, this is just real life. This is just how it is. And you find, you find your own place, you know? Um, and then, like I say, you eventually end up learning, hopefully, that you can't please everybody. You know, whatever you do, you can't please everybody. There's always somebody who's going to complain. And it's how you, you know, how you deal with that, you know, I guess. I, th I, think, I think the trick in life, if possible, is to put yourself in a surroundings and an environment where there are people like you around. And if that means you're an arsehole wanting to be surrounded by arseholes, that's great too, right? And if that means you're a kind person surrounded by kind people, that's great too, right? Do you know what I mean? You, you want to put yourself where you feel comfortable. That's what people normally do. If you come to my academy, right, our academy is unapologetically one of the cleanest places you will go to. We make it a thing. And if you don't like it, how clean we are, and it upsets you, then you can leave. We've hunted down people who peed all over the toilet seat and left it, and we found it, and I found out who it was, and I spoke to them. Are you gonna, if you think you're going to come to my gym and piss all over my toilet seat and not clean it and think it's okay, you crack, you're on crack. No, for real. I can it's, imagine this stressing it, down. It, 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 <laughs> I feel like I did it. It, and I haven't even it happened. It happened. If you come to my gym to train and your feet stink, I will send you off the mat. Because nobody wants your stinky foot in their face. I'm serious. Yeah, I agree. I'm just telling you how it is. We tell everybody. And the rules are there. 
cleanliness. I listen, I've got no problems. You went to work, hard day at work, calm day, we got shower, go and shower. Quickly, clean your foot, whatever. Do what you need to do. If you train with your ghee, which was stinky, and you put it in your bag and come and, and uh, we catch that, you can't train, get off. You understand? You do kickboxing and you leave your sweaty gear, your gloves and stuff in your bag, and you come on the mats and it stinks. You need to come off. Right? Completely unapologetically about it. So does it still happen a little bit? Yes, but the instances of it are very rare in my academy. Right? Because we value... I got nearly 400 members in my academy. Right? Which is not the biggest in the world, but we're a decent size. We're at least a medium-sized academy. I could have 100 people a day coming in. Their welfare is my responsibility whilst you're on my premises, right? You don't want to train with someone who's going to give you stuff, right? Yeah? Yes. You don't want that. And we just had COVID, right? And that was the first time half the world learned about washing their hands, right? Or cleaning themselves, right? They just discovered that's what they do. So, we, all I'm saying is, I take it very seriously in, in my gym, completely unapologetically. And I've had words with people who are not clean. Uh, those people have actually all stayed. But if they choose to leave because it's too clean for them, adios. You know what I mean? No problem. Go and explain to another guy why you left my gym because it was too clean. Do you know what I mean? And that's, like I said, one of the reasons why we have white geese instead of black geese, because you can't hide the blood. Right? You can't hide the dirt. It's not so easy. It's not so easy to wash a white geese. Yeah, but there's you, a difference do, between... Do you have a secret for, for getting this kind of bright electric white yeah, that you can share? Yeah, easy. Have more than one geese. Yeah. But that's the answer. But, but I mean, do, do, do you have to change them more frequently, you mean? No, like just have more than no. one geese. Every geese eventually gets old over time, Right? And there are some geese, depending on the manufacturer and depending on where they were made, where those collars, you know, the collars get, there's nothing you can do about that. The collars just got black over time because that's how they were made. You have to throw it out eventually. You just, it might be clean, but it looks dirty. You know what I mean? Because that's how they were made. But in this day and age, if you're training jiu-jitsu two or three times a week, you need three geese. Well, at least, very least two, because Monday, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So you need it. That's the bottom line. You know, you, you have to do it, right? We got wardrobes full of geese, but I mean, I still struggle to, after a while, to make my white ones look nice. Look, it all depends on how, I'm not being funny, but it all depends on how you recycle your geese. When I say recycle, like, there are some geese, if I know, that I use more for sparring, like, I'm sparring, and I know someone's going to get blood on it and, or something, so, you know what I mean? Gotcha. So I'll, I'll wear that one, and I'll use that one more, and eventually, when it's dead, off it goes. Off it goes, Right. I have a lot of geese. I'm sponsored by Tatami. I've been with them for years. They're amazing. So I get all the geese and have one. But I still wash them all and they're still there and I'll pick one out and then use it and then it goes in the wash. I don't allow it to get so dirty that the dirt doesn't come out. That's the secret. And obviously, I use this product, I think, called Nappy Sand. I think this is just... And you put it in the wash and generally it cleans the blood and, and everything out. 
Napisan. Yeah, N-A-P-I-S-A-N. It's a powder, but it's really good. It keeps your stuff white. I mean, look, just talking about geese for a second. When we have open mat sessions, we do allow people to wear black geese and blue geese. Open mat, come whatever color you like, wear that. But in regular classes, it's all, it's all white. Still, your geese still needs to be clean, but, you know. Yeah, but, that's, you know, that's just generally it. But as I said, honestly, you don't want to be training with somebody who stinks, man. No, I agree. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of nasty. It's about the most personal art you can get, and you don't really want that. Yeah, I mean, when the 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 the, the original club that I went to where I had the neck injury, mm. um, he used to have a guy there. I won't. He still trains. I, I think he's a black belt now, so I won't say his name. But his nickname used to be the Black Death because he he always had ringworm. Disgusting. Like if you roll with him, you're going to get ringworm. That's, that's what I was told. Like, oh, you roll with X person. Yeah, that's disgusting. Isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that's I was kind of like, bad and, and you know, in the mat, it stinks as well. Because have you what have you got like the have you got canvas on your mats? No, we have proper judo mats. Right. Okay. But they they're like a closed cell, right? They're sealed on the uh, top. Yeah, yeah, they're all yeah, sealed. Yeah, because yeah, because when you get those kickboxing mats, you know. The no, ones, you can't. No. Oh man. No. I mean, look, look you, know, you know what? Right. We've all been. Here's the thing, right? I use this expression in this day and age. Finances dictate a lot of things, right? And in an academy, one of the most expensive things is always the mats. But it's also one of the most important things. And if you open an academy and you put those mats down, those jigsaw mats, with those not cloffy, you know, the rubbery kind of thing, you should cover it at least because they don't clean properly. Yeah. You can't get the dirt or the smell out. And I appreciate, oh, okay, I don't have a lot of money. I want to open an academy. I want to teach. But that's your, that's your, that's your most important thing, and you need to, you should at least cover it, right? Spend two, three hundred, whatever, get a cover and cover it, right? So at least that way you can keep it clean and keep the smell out, mm. you know. And I know things were different before, but in 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 these days, that's the expectation. Now you go to a gym, it's you know good mats, it's clean, it's you know that's the expectation, right? Um, it yeah. is, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you go to a place where it's day, I mean, I'd be mortified to be rolling to find hairs in my... I, I mean, I, wa I went to do a seminar. I went to teach a seminar at a place one time. I was just going to ask you if you ever rocked up for a seminar. Oh, yeah, I've done many seminars. I went to teach a seminar at a place one time. Beautiful match, but they hadn't been uh, cleaned. They hadn't did, been did you teach it? Yeah, what I did, it was I. I got their hoover and brush, and I cleaned the area where I was going to teach. And I taught there, and I didn't move. You didn't tape it off. No. <laughs> right. It was. It was. It wasn't good. Right. But they didn't. They didn't say, "Oh, hang on, sorry." Let's just quickly do the didn't whole. Didn't say nothing. No. It was just. You know, just I'm mean, normally I would say something, but the scenario was such. Okay, let me just. And I thought, you know, it's like, uh, and they thought it was normal, right? Some people, you know, they 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 clean their gym mats maybe once a day if you're lucky, right? Uh, and we we hoover our mats after every class, so it's hoovered. Mm. 
And most of the time we will mop. The only time I won't mop is we did jujitsu and then afterwards is the kickboxing class. So I'm not gonna mop. I'm not even gonna hoover because they're doing kickboxing. Yeah. But if it's the other way around, kickboxing, then jujitsu, we hoover and we mop. Right? Because then now you're gonna put your face where the person's foot was, right? You can tell I'm quite. You can tell I'm quite passionate about this stuff I because can tell you're passionate be, be, about because, this. because 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 I tell stories about cleanliness that is over and above what other people do because I've seen it, right? And honestly, people have used the term OCD with me about cleanliness. I don't even think it's OCD. It's just to me, it's what I believe normal should be. If you go to the toilet and you're in a class and you're training and you go to the toilet. Right? Let me tell you this. At the very least, you should take off your jacket and your belt and leave it outside. Don't take your jacket and belt into the toilet. Right? Because the chances are you probably don't even have a hook in the toilet on the back of the door to hang it up. The chances are you probably don't. So where are you going to put your gear? Right? Are you you're talking about if you're going to sit down or even if you're going to take a pee? Even if you're going to take a pee, why would you take your jacket and your, you have to take your belt off, right? To go for a pee, but, or you lift up, right? But why would you want to take your thing in there? Now let's talk, let's, let's talk real talk now because we're men here. And it's not that women don't talk real talk, but I'm going to talk real talk for men. If you go to the toilet and do a number one, it is almost impossible to escape any little of your urine going on your foot. It, because even when you shake, it's just, you know, it just goes. When you're wearing shoes, you don't notice because you're wearing your trainers. But when you go barefoot, I'm not barefoot, I mean like with your flip-flops, there's a little droppage on your foot. And that makes you realize how it's normal. It can happen, no problem. But ask me how many people got their little hand sanitizer thing and just cleaned their foot before they went back on the, the top, before they went back on the mat, right? Probably not many, no. right? Probably not many. Let alone the risk of a little bit of urine just dropping on the front of your gi when you pulled your trouser down, right? Then next minute you're going to go and roll with brethren over there in north and south position, putting your urine-infested crotch right in his face. I tell you what, I think is going to make you feel even worse. But is you it, get what I'm saying. Oh, I totally get what you're saying, but sometimes at work, if it's a sunny day, I'll take some shorts and a T-shirt. So at lunch, I'll stick a pair of shorts on and I go and sit outside in the, in the car park. And if I take a pee in the urinal before I go back in to, to um, get changed, I notice there's little bits flick off the urinal, like I can feel on the hairs on my legs. And I, and I think, geez, like I'm, I'm peeing on my trousers. But that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, right? but I mean, how do you... You've got, you got to put people in like some kind of hazmat suits. No, no. L listen to what I'm saying to you, right? What I'm saying is, first of all, let's understand the facts. And then secondly, you decide what you're going to do about it. Do you understand what I'm saying? The facts are, if you go to the toilet during a class, there is a fair chance you're going to put some, as a man, there is a fair chance you're going to put some urine on your trousers. 100% chance. Right? 
That's the first thing. Now you have to decide what you're going to do about it. That's what I'm saying. Right? Because ask yourself this. Your training partner says, I'm just going to it and he comes back. Now he wants to roll with you. There's a fair chance he pissed on his trousers. What do you want to do about it? So do you, do you decline to roll with people after they've been to the loo? It's a little bit different for me because in a regular class, I don't tend to spar with the students. But I say it's your sparring session and halfway through someone says, oh, dude, I've just got to quickly nip to the loo. Do in, you say... In, in, tr in truth, I'll be honest, I don't even really think about it too much, to be honest. I don't. I mean, that's the honest truth. I don't really think about it too much. Um... I don't. I, I'm only just mentioning the facts to you when we talk about the cleanliness and stuff like that. And I'm talking about what's the personal responsibility of people. So let me tell you what has happened to me. So at my academy, I've got like 50 geese all in my room, really. I've been to the toilet. I'd left my gear, my, my jacket and my belt out. I was going to the toilet and as I was coming out, I was like, oh, shit. And a couple of drops went on the front of my gear trouser, which nobody would have known or noticed. And I cussed myself, you idiot. And I went to my room and I changed my gear. Because in good conscience, I couldn't put that. But another guy, he probably maybe he didn't have another gear. You know what I mean? Didn't have another option. So maybe he's just going to clean it with the, you know, and then go and roll, right? I'm not trying to say there's a solution. I'm just saying that. There's a problem. <laughs> you, you, I'm, I'm simply saying, look, just try, I'm, I'm, I'm educating people. Or I'm saying just be aware. Try and be a good person so far as that is concerned, right? Yeah. That's what I'm it, saying. It, it, try to be a good person and try and think about somebody else. It's like your 80-20 rule, isn't it? You, you try and, you know, you can get 80% of the benefits by doing 20% of the things. So you try to not be I mean, on I've, your own I've feet. Been on, I've, I've been on my own mat, yeah, and I've seen someone go to the side and blow their nose and then come back on the mat. And I'm saying, wait, go and use the hand sanitizer, bro. Why would you blow your nose? <laughs> Put the tissue in the bin and then come to spa with me. Go and wash your hand or put hand sanitizer. But it's they just natural. They just do it. I've, I've got like a really vivid picture of what it's like training in your academy. Everyone's just getting cussed out every five minutes. They know, <laughs> but they, they don't because they know. That's what I'm trying to say. We created that culture. Let, let me tell you what we were what we were able to do. And this is this is what's important. I opened this gym, this, my gym, in 2018, and we started like that from day one. So everybody knows, and those that didn't know, we educate them. And as a result, everybody's happy because they know they're coming to a clean gym. When the kids bring their parents, they see cleanliness. They're happy. They have to be clean. Everybody's happy because it's clean. Do you see what I mean? Yes, I it's, mean. it's harder if you run an academy which has always been run in a certain way, and now you decide to become clean. It's hard to change that culture, isn't it? It's yeah, hard. Yeah, it yeah. is harder. It is definitely hard to change that culture. For sure. I, I, I'm a, I make it clear to my student, we invest a lot of money, mops, cleaning products. I've got a room dedicated to cleaning products. Mops, cleaning products, you know, cleaner comes. We clean every day, but the cleaner in our gym comes dedicated twice a week, cleans everywhere, right? I, I mean, I'm just saying, that's the culture in my gym is is of cleanliness, you know, full stop, right? You won't come to my mats and see blood in there. If there's blood in there, we clean it and we disinfect it and it's gone. 
Yeah, and that's the, I just think that's the le- that's me, that's the least we can do to make sure that the place is clean for the people who come, right? Yeah. Completely unapologetically, you know? And if I'm at the upper end of the scale of cleanliness, which I believe I am, you know, at least in terms of how clean we want it to be, that's fine. Maybe some other people want to aspire to become as clean as that. Because why would you aspire not to be clean? I mean, why would you? Oh, I don't care about, you know. And, and you know, students in my gym, we, we have a joke about it. They laugh because he's bought another mop or his, you know what I mean? He's got five hoovers. We laugh about it and I know we... Do, do you get uh, cleaning products for like birthdays or Christmas presents? <laughs> they haven't given <laughs> me any yet. we bought you some. They more. haven't done that yet because they know I've got them all already. But, the <laughs> is, but you know, I, I'm just saying I'm completely unapologetic about that because it's, it's listen, I can't do anything about going to a shop or wherever it's clean or on the street. I can't. I can only take care of two places: my house and my gym. My my, my gym's cleaner than my house, and my house is okay. My gym's even cleaner because I have so many people in there. You understand? That's all I can do is make it clean. And if you come in, you know you're in a safe environment. Even the air is clean. Why? I have a special machine, antibacterial machine that cleans the air, even kills COVID. And we have that because if we're kind of in a basement, not an obvious basement because you walk down the slab, but we're in a basement. So we have ventilators which bring in and out of the air. There's lots of people training in the room. So we have the thing to kill the bacteria in the air. I did it because it was necessary. The machine wasn't cheap, but I invested to make sure that it was done right. That's it really. I mean, this is, honestly, we don't lose too much sleep over it. It's just a given. I'm going to tell you, it's just a given. That's how we, you know, we operate. Um, yeah, I mean, it, that that sort of seem, seems in line with what I understand about the way that you've organised everything. It's just do it properly at the beginning and then you have that system that is, you know, it is sort of uh, synonymous with, with you. Listen, we're not perfect, we make mistakes, we get it wrong and we learn and then try to improve. If someone suggests something, we try to do it. You know what I mean? And I just say, and I keep using the term unapologetically, we want to get better and improve and keep the place clean and safe for everybody and, you know, good learning and training environment. That's pretty much it. So I've got one more question for sure. you. Sure. See if I can... Where do uh, I get my haircut? Ready? Well, yeah, same place as me. Um, yeah, because my wife keeps saying to me, oh, you need to have a thing where you ask question. You ask question every week and I... It's not really my thing, but I found this one on Instagram and I thought, I'm going to ask this on the next podcast, so tell me whether this is a good one or not. You can have £10 million right now, but you're being chased by a snail. If the snail touches you, you die a terrible death. The snail cannot be killed. The snail has only one purpose, which is to get to you. Would you take the money? Okay. So you're asking a lawyer a question, right? So do, do you mean that I, I can't run away? Are you, oh, you can run away. But so where's the te- what do I need to earn a 10 million pound? Oh, you just, you just, I guess, sign the contract. Here's a briefcase full of cash or you can have a bax or whatever you want. But this snail, let's, let's put him in, he's in Manchester at the moment. Yeah. He gets the... He gets the download from the universe. Yeah. I've got to go and get David Denuma. Yeah. And that's it. He just keeps coming. Is it, I mean, there's nothing we can do to get rid of this now. It just keeps coming. He, he never dies. 
He can't be stopped. Okay. And if he touches you, yeah, okay. it's bad. Okay. Uh, I know it's a theoret theoretical question. Uh, I mean, if, if everything we know about snails is correct, then the chances of the snail ever getting to me are extremely low in this case. So that might be, that might be odds worth accepting. That's it, really. That might be odds worth accepting. Especially in, I'm just going by the example that you gave. If it's not a super snail, it's in Manchester. Normal snail. You know, it might get killed on the way, but you said it can't die. But can't you know, die. eventually, you know, you might be able to trap it in a box or something, you know what I mean? But who knows? Uh, the, the odds are not too bad of taking that, uh, that particular bet, okay. I would say. That's good. I mean, it's, I think it's quite, a, it's quite a, maybe an interesting question to ask of, of how you... Uh, yeah, I mean, how you see things, it's, it's, it's an odds game. I mean, I mean, but look, yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely odds, but I'll tell you something that is quite funny. Myself and my friends and my family, we do play this game, which is called, it's not anything new, it's called the how much game. And basically, you see something and you think, oh, I'd never do that. And then you ask somebody, how much, how much would, it, you know? So, you know, you've got your sandwich, you're walking down the road, you trip, your sandwich falls open on the floor. Uh, on the street, right? Where everybody walks. Maybe it fell into some crap or not, but you know, it's right there. How much money would you, would it cost, would you take for you to pick up that sandwich and eat it off the floor? I'm not asking you, but that's the kind of games that Quite a lot. we play. And then you say, well, and they said, no, I'd never do it. What about 50 grand? 100 grand right now, would you do it? And you would be like, mm, well, actually, and it just becomes interesting. Then you start to see what people would do, you know, for money. You know, and I said, no, I would never do that, but, oh, okay. Yeah, man, then the game becomes quite interesting now. It's like. Yeah, that's the subject of money. That's a whole nother Now, if you said to me, right? how much money would it cost, would it, would it take for you to allow a flea-ridden, stinky, dirty, gee, unwashed person to come trade on my mat with dirty feet? How much? Oh, I was going to ask you how much does it cost to, to get you to go teach a seminar in the in the flea pube gym, <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll keep that one for another day. So, uh, thank you very much for coming in. I, I really appreciate your time. My I, pleasure. I appreciate you um, speaking and uh, sharing your your wisdom and your knowledge and your advice. Um, the the academy is North Twelve. Yeah, the the name of the academy was North Twelve Academy of Martial Arts because we're in North Finchley, N12, so we're, we're easily f findable on Google. Um, the, we teach, the, the arts we teach there, uh, they're all under the banner of CFS, Combined Fighting System. We haven't created anything new, but that's just the banner. So the BJJ is uh, uh, CFS BJJ, that's our international team. Uh, and then the other arts, the striking arts, they're CFS arts, so whether it be the kickboxing or anything else like that. Full-time full academy? Yeah, it's a full-time academy. Classes every day? Yeah, we're not, we're not open on Sundays, but we're, okay. we're open, you know, every other day, and we have classes for men, women, children, you know, the usual mix of stuff, and yeah. And uh, what's the website? www.nth12.com NTH12. Yeah, short for North, NTH12. And are you active on social media or not yeah, so much? Yeah, yeah, um, uh, we have two. There's my name, David Anuma. And, on, and also the academies up there on North 12 Academy of Martial Arts on Instagram and I'm there on Facebook. There Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you very much. In. Thanks for a good uh, 
anyone took the time to listen, I, uh, you know, thanks for that. And uh, if anyone wants to shoot me a DM or ask me any questions or ask me where I buy my cleaning products, let me know. I'm the yeah, king. If, you, if you want to go to the cleanest gym, <laughs> for sure, <laughs> this side of I don't know where. Um, but yeah, definitely um, go go check the gym out. I, I need to come down and train, actually. I mean, I was we were connected up by um, Neon Bells. Um, so thank you, bro, for, for connecting us. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Um, I know everybody's time is precious, so if you stayed with us all the way through, thank you very much. Don't forget to follow the podcast, uh, Best Places at White Basement Pod on Instagram. Uh, we'll put a new episode out every Tuesday, and um, we'll catch you next time. If you don't deserve my love, you won't get it, no credit. Me over once and regret it, yeah, I've said it. Feelings and emotions, I can shed it, re-edit. I'm running from my past, yeah, a legacy, the hell is. I'm running around my brain, trying to 